Greetings, orca lovers, killer whale cuddlers, and fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. Welcome to a special Orca Action Month episode of Scanna. Last summer, after Talaqua carried her dead calf for 17 days, the world's attention shifted to the story of Scarlet, an adorable young orca who became the subject of an international rescue mission. There were three nations involved in trying to find out why Scarlet was starving to death and whether anything could be done to save her. Canada, the U.S., and the Lummi. Ever since then, I've been trying to connect with someone from the Lummi Nation to talk about the amazing work they've been doing to help raise awareness of the Southern residents and to help save the orcas they consider family. I recently connected with Kurt Russo, a senior strategist for the tribe's Sovereignty and Treaty Protection Office, to talk all things orca, including the ceremonial feedings that have been making international news. As always, the Scanna Podcast is brought to you by our awesome podmates who sponsor us through Patreon.com. Your hosts for this episode include Simon McNair, Nancy Campbell, Hollowtree, Glenda McFarlane, Eagle Wing Tours, and Yosef Lask. Our patrons help us pay for the gear to record and store our interviews and to pay honorariums to the awesome team that makes these podcasts possible. And now... Let's dive right into this interview as Kurt Russo tells us about his work with Lummi Nation and their work for the Southern Resident Orcas. Yeah, well, um, by the way of introducing me, I'm not a tribal member, but I've been working on these issues with the Lummi since 1978, so I've got a little history <laughs> here, um, and I have always worked in the area where the treaty rights, human rights, and the environment intersect. So ever since 1978, that's where I've been, usually um, working side-by-side side with tribal member Jewel Prangwell James, who is also in the Sovereignty Office, where we now are. We are we're in the Sovereignty and Treaty Protection Office of the Lummi Nation, and um, so part of our charge is to restore and protect the Salish Sea. And when we talk about the Salish Sea, we're speaking pretty specifically, recognizing it's one indivisible body of water. We're talking about the Straits of Georgia and Harrow and Rosario Straits and the Straits of Juan de Fuca. That is like our first area of utmost concern for a number of reasons. But um, we understand there's a Salish Sea south of that, but we can only do so much. So our work is to uh, approach the preservation of the Salish Sea by addressing the decline, precipitous decline, of salmon, the uh, the crisis of the southern residents, and the threat of a catastrophic ecological collapse of the Salish Sea. And that's just flat out not going to happen. And the Lummies, you know, they're fighting. Now, the most recent bit about the fight that I've heard is that was the uh, piece in The Guardian about putting salmon in the ocean for the orcas. Can you talk about that? How that came about and what the plan is there or was this how it came about you know it's interesting because at this point in this kind of conversation it's important to um enter into what some people call the 
undecided space of imagination. I love that. Because we're entering an, the indigenous world now. So step over the boundary line with me here and come into the way they see the world. Now, the way they see their world in terms of the feeding is um, they are uh, the, uh, the orca, the blackfish, southern residents. Um, they have a name, and their name is Kualalmachan. That's their name. It's a lummy name, Salish name. And it means it's rough translation. You know, translations are iffy, iffy business, but roughly translated, the people that live under the water. So the Lummies and other Salish peoples, certainly the Lummies, um, conceive of the blackfish as relatives. They're not co-evolving mammals. <laughs> they are relatives. So now we're looking at this the indigenous point of view and honoring that with their way of world making. And they have a right to that. And they've been living that way for, you know, um, they were here during the last ice age. They were here when this area was under a mile of ice. These lummies, they're right here. And the, uh, they saw the orcas come. They saw the salmon come. They saw the cedar come. They saw the thing transform and change. And they developed ceremonies and beliefs. And they watched. Very observant. Very observant peoples. They're visual. You know, oral histories are really visually oriented. Okay. So they noticed the world about them is all related in many ways, and especially the killer whales. So the feedings are part of a deep system of belief that goes back to this understanding that these are their direct relations. They have what they consider to be a sacred obligation. There's a lummy word for that. Sacred obligation to do this work. So they're called to do it. Why are they? They're called to do it. What do they mean? The, I don't, I, it's hard to explain that. It, they're called to do it. They, they are called to do this through their way of getting callings, ancient ones included. And when they do a feeding now, um, as one biologist put it, well, you know, you can't save 75 killer whales with one fish. Really? Gee, we didn't know that. <laughs> well, that's new news. The, the spirit of the undertaking is the southern residents are all one family, right? It's all one extended family, three pods. They interbreed. They have a super pod meeting once every year or so. They're a family, family reunions, and that family has a collective spirit, a collective spirit. In fact, that collective spirit even has a name. They are feeding that, and they're doing it. It's almost like a message in a bottle. They're putting a live king going way out of the way and doing a very private ceremony, which in 40 years I've never seen and probably never will. But it's a very private sacred ceremony that was done out there on Henry Island couple weeks ago, and they did some really, really old, ancient work. So as they told the journalists later, there were hundreds of ancient ones there with them, hundreds, on the beach up into the forest. And they gave a message. You know, this is what I'm suggesting. People go, uh, gee, if only that were true. It is true. Gosh, I wish it were true. This uh, is interesting to me. My my PhD is in history, and I've always been interested in this kind of historical understandings that are acted in the present day rather than abandoned from the name of progress. You know what I mean? So these ancient teachings, progress is is measured by how well you pass on the past. That's how you measure progress. 
So progress in this sense is ancestral teachings, showing them that what they're doing is working, is the good and right work. Keep doing it. You have our blessings and you have our support. We're behind you. That's what they're told. With that, they got back on the little Zodiac law enforcement boat, I might add. <laughs> this is the Lummi law enforcement boat they're on. We're on another boat following with the journalists. On the Lummi law enforcement boat, they get to a place where they're called to be. They do the ceremony associated with this work on the water. They took that live king that was brought all the way to Squawkham Harbor. It had been in that tote for two and a half hours. <laughs> After it was brought down from the river, a live Chinook salmon. And it was very alive. And they pulled it out, and it rested in their hands, and they put kind of a sacred substance on the fish, just laid there. And they rested it on the water, and bam, down it went into the water, taking the message to the spirit of Kualalmachan. That ceremony is the first of many. I need to add something about that, though, that you should know about. The Lummies aren't asking permission to do this from anybody. NOAA, Fish and Wildlife Service, W, they're not asking permission. They don't have to. I asked one of these agencies, I asked someone from NOAA one time on a phone call. I said, uh, I have a question for you, just uh, your honest answer. Where do you get the moral authority to tell the Lummies what they can and cannot do in their ancestral waters? Where does that come from? The law. I'm not, I'm not asking about the law. I said, where's the moral authority come from? You invented all the laws. Where's the moral authority? Crickets? No answer. Okay. So they, Lummies, believe they have the moral authority and the moral obligation and the sacred moral obligation. Do they do? We don't need permits from no or anybody else. Remember, it's on their Lummy law enforcement boat. <laughs> their cops are doing this with us, along with their chief and their chairman and their ritualist. And other leaders and the head of this office, sovereignty office, all on that boat, exercising what they call to be and is, in fact, an inherent right. If this sounds like political propaganda, I'm sorry it's not. It's an inherent right. you know. It's an inherent right. And one thing about the inherent rights, which is not well known in the public, inherent rights include um, anything that was not given away in the treaties – was reserved. It's called reserved rights doctrine. One of the rights that was reserved is the right to exercise their inherent beliefs. They never gave that away. They didn't say, well, if we want to do this, we'll get a permit from you. They never gave that away. So they have this inherent right. So these are ceremonial feedings based on ancestral knowledge that they are called to do through ancient channels for their relatives that live in longhouses under the water in the Salish Sea. That's what they're doing, and they're going to do more of these, four more at least this year. And we want to feed at a certain point 75 kings, one for each member of the family is going to go out alive and with ceremony given to the family and let them know we're here, we care, we're doing what we can, we stand with you, you will not go extinct. Fascinating. That that's just fantastic. Thank you. And that's what the lummies. What has the response been to that? Like, has there been pushback from Noah? Has there been pushback from the American government? You know, it's interesting. It, it, it's interesting because um, you know, I have um, have to say, and I always kind of throw this in as a preface. Um, when we worked to try to save J fifty Scarlet. We worked in close partnership, collaboration, and a really amazing experience in collaborating with NOAA, WDFW, 
U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Our law enforcement boat was the feeding platform for J-50. It had the fish. And we went out with them, and they were great. It was, if only we could always work that well together and get this bureaucracy out of the bloody way. These are all people on every single boat that care about the orca. Everyone. Right? So, Noah was great, but Noah's kind of got many personalities, a bit of a sibyl. <laughs> um, yeah, I can relate so, to that. So we when we uh, we were we were upfront about this. We told no, we were going to go do this, and they said two things: our prayers are with you. How about that? Not our permits, our prayers. That's from Noah. Second thing they said was, "Can we go? <laughs> Will you give us permission <laughs> to go with you to do something for which you do not have a permit?" It sounds like the response on this has been very positive. Then. It, in the sense that you know these are these ceremonial feedings are done uh, with uh, ancient ceremony in ancient ways, and it's got we know we're not going to keep the entire pod together by dropping a few fish in the water, but also they also the lummies believe this is not just this is also this a super sensible quality of this isn't just about the physical feeding of a fish to a whale it's about something else that needs to get fed just like with something with you something with all of us there is something beyond just the food we put in our body i can put food in my body and because i am emotionally disoriented or displaced i don't get nourishment and so there's a question of the psychological welfare of these uh, orca of their relatives because part of it is their relations are really stressed why are their relations really stressed because you know orca blackfish kualamachan you know, highly intelligent, as they say, they spend if they're in a, in a in a balanced ecosystem, they spend a good deal of their time playing, um, interacting, socializing, and uh, a somewhat less percentage um, foraging and feeding, maybe thirty, forty percent. But when the food is scarce and the vessels are numerous and the noise is intense, then that flips. And they don't have the time they need to hold together in a strong way the bonds that hold them together as a body. So they're spending a lot of time just trying to find food, and that's not the way it should be. That's not the way their whole the whole pod has evolved. People keep saying, why do they just eat Chinook? Well, you know, it's interesting. Well, they, they'll eat other things as well, but mainly, you know, they eat kings, the southern residents do. Um, and to me, it's interesting because it kind of shows that at a certain point, this was a really abundant system <laughs> with lots of very big salmon. So a southern resident could eat you know, three of those, four of those a day, and they're good to go. But now you can't even find a dozen little ones. So they can't just shift their eating patterns. And this is, you know, this is the problem. In fact, the lummies have compared it to what the lummies have gone through. Um, there were anthropologists, including some colleagues of mine, have noted that in the pre-contact period, in terms of solid, you know, sun up to sundown work, uh, the communities in this area might work four months out of the year, maybe. Okay. And most of the rest of the time was devoted to potlatch, you know, occasional. They had, you know, they had they had duck nets up and things, the harvest of oysters and so on. But when the salmon season had come and gone, the rest of the year was often about spirit dances, about potlatches, about human maintaining social bonds, extended social relations. Was the vast majority of the time was devoted to that. Now it's flipped, just like the orca. 
one thing that really hit me when I was covering the story of Scarlet and the story of Talakwa last summer. Um, yeah. And it was one of yeah. the first questions that I asked on the international press conference mm-hmm. was, mm-hmm. were there any other nations involved? And the answer that I got was no, only the Lummi. So I'm right. curious mm-hmm. to know how the Lummi became the nation at the forefront uh, of the fight for the Orcas and the Sailor Sea. And it's a testimony to their their leadership at many levels. But I mean, the thing that I, and I don't want to be over elaborate about this, but you know, the Lummi's like, my colleagues said they they have in their veins they have Lummi and and Cowichan and Squamish and Squamish and Muckleshoot and all of the all of the all of the various um, what are now called tribes the there's a lot of blood in in the veins of Lummi's that touch upon many of the communities in the Salish so yes this particular part of the sailor civilization rose up and did this. Why? I don't know. But they did. You know, it used to be called the sailor civilization. Then they broke them up into tribes. <laughs> it's a civilization. You know, it's a big one, as a matter of fact. Yeah. So this, this branch of that civilization was called to do this. Part of it came by way of Tokatai. Tokatai the killer whale. Yep. So Tokatai has been visiting the visions and the callings of the Lummi here for two years. And I think, and I don't pretend to know exactly how, but I think that her family, probably through the tribal way of knowing things, uh, utilized that channel to call out to the Lummies because no one else was really listening. I'd like to hear about the fight to save Tokatai because I again I thought that was amazing to to follow and I'd love to hear anything you can tell me about how that came together and what was done by the Lemmy to try and pull this off. The uh, one of the handful of prominent carvers in the Lemmy Nation um, received a message from a young girl on the East Coast that received a message from Tokatai. And she had called out through that triangulation to the Lummies to bring her home. Wow. I was told that we need to gear up. It's an obligation to bring this girl home. I hadn't heard of it before, but 2017. But Lummies were participating in the commemoration of her capture in Penn Cove in 1970 for decades. So I worked with the appropriate people in the tribe to develop a way to get her out of that old tank and get her back to her mother, who's now the matriarch of the Elpod, Ocean Sun. So we have developed a series of levers to get her out of Miami. And she's still in Miami. I know that she's still in Miami. And we're going to be in Miami at the end of this month, again, to stand in front of the aquarium and the rest of the country and demand her release. And we're doing other things too. It's not just appealing to Sequarium to do the right thing because they're not going to listen to that. But we have levers in different places and we're prying her out of there. And I expect she'll be home in 18 months. Now, there are those who will say she's 51 years old. She's too old. She's, she's about midlife for a killer whale female. I actually, we're actually working with the man who was her first caretaker when she was four years old. And I said, she's been in captivity, basically alone. 
in a tank 80 feet in diameter and 20 feet deep in chlorine in Miami, and she still sings her song every night, and she races around showing life force. What? Who is this? And she said, I'll tell you something, Kurt. I've worked with killer whales for 40 years. I've never seen one like Tokatai. She is the only living North American captive orca still alive, captured in the United States. She's the last living wild orca. One of the councilmen here, his name is Fred Lane. He's on the government. He's also a spirit dancer, which means he the old ways of connecting to the animistic world around us. And he is going to be in Miami with the totem pole that was carved for her. And he went to Miami Seaquarium last year when I was with him, and he stood at the side of the tank. And across the other side of the tank, Tokatai was facing in the opposite direction, being fed by her handlers. And Tokatai did a 180, came straight over to where he was standing, and just hung in the water while he sang his song. Wow. There is another, you know, there really is, anthropologists tell you this, historians will tell you this, um, social scientists, some will agree, there is no universal world-making process. There isn't one universal meta-narrative as to what is true. Science cannot ultimately prove itself any more than Lummi oral history can. There is no proof of the proof. Everything comes down at some point, whether it's electricity or killer whales swimming across a tank to greet a relative. Everything is possibly true depending on the angle of view. That sounds like hopeless irrealism. It's not just relativism. I'm not talking in those terms. These are what they call worldviews with a perspicuous order. They have an inner logic. They're not just made-up stuff. And part of the relation to Tokatai, part of the obligation to her and her family, her mother, her pod, the extended family, that moral obligation is grounded in a cosmology that believes, as we believe in electricity and evolution and all that stuff, it is believed they are people, as we are people. And it's, that is a perspectivism, it's called in historical terms. A historian will call that perspectivism. But it's not just like, okay, anything, anything you want to think is true. It's not that way. This way they're talking about, this way of world making, is some would say the only thing left that can save us from ourselves. Because apparently, scientism married up to financial capitalism isn't sustainable. It can't solve the problems it's created on its own, it needs other ways of understanding. Why things are the way they are? How did they come to be? What is our role in that? We need this knowledge. We need to understand. And that's one of the things about bringing Tokatai home. When Tokatai comes home, Mark, and she will, she will gradually be rehabilitated, learn how to, again, exercise that muscle memory of catching fish, which she, it's in her, it's in her, it's in there. And she will at one point hear her mother out in the water, because they can hear up to a mile, two miles away easily underwater, sometimes 10. And she will reunite with her mother. And, you know, when they reunite, it's been observed, they um, breach. They come out of the water together. There's going to be in a moment in the history of the Sailor Sea when mother and daughter are reunited. And my feeling is 
all of us who know about that will remember exactly what we were doing at that moment, and the Sailor Sea will never look the same again. I love that. Yeah, I just love that. And, and it's amazing to picture it. And, but Oceanside, I mean, isn't just, Oceanside isn't just the matriarch of Elpod now. She's the matriarch of the entire Southern Residence with Ben. She's in. Uh, we've had conversations with Ralph Monroe. And he was Secretary of State in 1970 in Washington State. He gave the permit for the capture. And he said two things to us. He said, Kurt, they took whale after whale after whale. They devastated the pod. Devastated it. Curious, though, he said, I think they might have violated the terms of their permit because they used, get this, underwater explosives to corral them into Pencove. They weren't supposed to use underwater explosives, but they did. Now, that pod has never been back to Pencove. And I think there's such a thing as PTSD for Orca. That moment when they saw young ones killed, taken away, adults killed, filled with concrete and sunk to the bottom, all of that devastation for these highly intelligent animals, the ones that survived. When they see her come home, I'll bet they'll show up again in Pencove. That would be amazing. Because everything that I gather about them is that they pass on knowledge. Because they've, they've stayed they away do. from places they were caught all over. You know, I've, They pass I've, on knowledge. They you know what surprises me, and I, I know I don't mean to offend, but it surprises me that we're surprised. Yes. <laughs> you know, these are these. You know, this Jeff Foster. Have you talked to Jeff Foster? No. You should talk to Jeff Foster. He is one of the people that's working with us on the Southern Residence and Tokatai, and also he was in, he is he is involved in freeing the orca and the belugas from the whale jail in Russia. He's directly involved in that effort. He said. Kurt, I'm going to tell you something. I, I've been studying and working with Orca since 1975, actually. He said, if you were to take um, – if we had – if we observed an Orca throughout all of its life at 100 percent, we have 3 percent observational data. Three. <laughs> I said, well, if you only have three, how do you know you have three? <laughs> you might have 0.3. They don't understand at all. The Orca. What's been fascinating talking to people who spent any time at all around the Southern Residence is everyone I speak to has an impossible story. Um, you know, I, like everyone I speak to has, has a fictionally implausible encounter with these orcas. I I, I was out filming a, a movie about Granny, and she freaking showed up and breached for us. Uh, now we were told repeatedly you'll be lucky to see granny this summer she showed up she greeted us with tail slaps she did a spy hop right on camera and then she breaches on camera and i was with people who've been watching these watching these for 20 years and they're like we've seen granny breach five times six and seven were with you tonight there's a meaning in there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You talk to the various people who spent their lives with these whales, and they've all yeah. got these impossible encounters, including people like Ken Balcom talking about the day he got lost in the water and an orcapod showed him the way home. <laughs> and in a way that hasn't happened before or since. You know, I think that's a very interesting metaphor. I think the orca. The Southern Residence can show us all the way home. When I started 
my work on this because I wasn't coming from a science perspective, I started asking what I thought would be an easy question. I was like, give me the scientific reason we're considered more evolved. I said, just, what is it? Because I, I, I thought, for sure, I would talk to somebody and go, well, there's this, and there's this, and there's this. And there wasn't one. So I, know, so I said, so what is the moral reason we have legal rights and they don't? And again, I thought somebody would have an answer for that. That's completely stumped people. And ever since then, I'm going, okay, unless somebody can give me a fine reason, other yeah. than it would be inconvenient, why yeah. these whales don't have rights, yeah. I'm well, going to keep fighting for these workers to have rights. I, I think it may come down to there, there's a great group in New York. You probably heard of them called the Earth Law Center. The, it's been observed that um, the the I, sort of the capitalist um, enterprise that's been around for you know 500 years more or less as we understand it has been uh, endeavoring mightily for about three fifths of that time to capture tribal communities and to inspire you know the, the capitalist uh, modus operandi among tribal communities, which of course are based on extended family relations. Right? I mean, the object of life is not to maintain family ties so much as to provide and gather and acquire as much as you can, so that they can't quite capture tribal communities. And one of the things that, and they haven't. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about that is coming in train with tribal belief systems among tri not all tribes and not every tribal person, but collectively, generally, I think it's a fair generalization, that they live in an animated world. And that kind of animated world was disenchanted in kind of the Euro-American experience about 200 years ago, maybe three, 250 years ago. And the, it's very interesting that some of the new historians coming up through these marginalized societies are saying, along with what you were just saying, by what higher moral authority do you disenchant the world and take away personhood from nature? I mean, who who gave you that right? I mean, where did you get that from? Well, I can answer that question. Emil Durkheim. <laughs> okay, I like this. Yeah, I mean, he, he basically in 1903, along with Crowburn and a few others, said, oh, animism is child's play. Get rid of it. Don't even honor it. Don't even talk about it. It's not, it's not real. It's just child's play. It's what children think. Well, that's probably true, <laughs> but it's, it's not childish. It just hasn't been taken out of them yet. You know what I'm saying? Animism and tribalism and an enchanted world are all in the same bundle, and all of it is antithetical to financial capitalism and the commodification of nature. You can't commodify nature when it has personhood. <laughs> you know, you can't just treat it as, for example, my background's in forestry. My part of my background's in forestry, and I did an article one time based on some things that I had learned in a couple of years being here, called Squidilich Board Feet and the Cedar Tree." Because in this article, it was in the University of Chicago, it was in a couple of journals. The point I was making was foresters, such as myself, you know, are taught that the tighter the grain in a tree, the more decadent the tree is. It's dying faster than it's growing. It's decadent. Cut it down. Well, here in this part of the world, the tighter the grain, the more powerful the song, the more ancient the song. So it's revered as an elder. Interesting, huh? So it was called, how do you get to a place where you can equally honor the belief systems and the consequences of those belief systems 
equally? That answer has not come. The question is still being asked because the answer might be an inconvenient truth for people who believe we are here to own and acquire. It's just kind of a problem. Well, if we stumbled upon an alien civilization that did something as complicated as an orca greeting ceremony, I think we'd pretty much take one look and go, wow, we've, we've found intelligent life. And that's yep. not how we treat the orcas at all. It's interesting, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Oh, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, there used to be hippos. Okay, come on, give me a break. <laughs> that doesn't matter. Even if it were true, it's irrelevant. They are highly sentient. That's the word you hear used, right, sentient? Yep. Uh, but this one, I'm, I just real, I just met uh, Dr. Blackall in Florida. goes, well, you know, that's really true. Oh, it's also true of sharks, by the way. <laughs> no one can figure out what's going on with sharks. I mean, the intelligence, well, they eat everything. Well, yeah, so do we. But that doesn't mean they're not intelligent. They're not just brute, brutes with teeth. She goes, we keep pushing these creatures off, so Orca won't let us push her away, right? <laughs> She's kind of like, it's too obvious. Um, I've got a picture I should send to you, which I've shared with my colleagues here, of Jeff Foster's wife, Katie. When they were in uh, Kamchatka Island, Vladivostok, they were taken by the Russian mafia to a local uh, sea circus where they have sea mammals in big tanks. And the picture that you see is Katie Foster, who's a little over seven months pregnant, standing a few feet away from the edge of a tank. And uh, about a foot and a half back from the edge of the tank is a beluga whale about halfway out of the water, sitting, standing there, looking right at her. And she said, I could feel its echolocation in my baby was moving around. It's an amazing photograph. The beluga was talking to her baby. Can you, what the Lummy are asking people to do right now, what their requests are, what their asks are, what we can get listeners to try and try and move on? This is what I would suggest. Um, I mean, the most, the most single most important thing that the general public and the sailors see can do is to lean into the issue in every way they can possibly imagine of the tribal collective, tribal efforts to increase the number of salmon in the sailor Sea. Hatchery salmon, wild salmon. Hatchery salmon are treaty fish. People confuse hatchery salmon with farm salmon. They're not the same thing. So we need more salmon. We need more salmon habitat, definitely. We need more fish. The tribal fishermen need more fish. The killer whales need more fish. The most important thing a person can do right now, I think anyway, other than stay aware of the issue, stay aware of the issue. And we have a great website that has good information on it, but also make it very clear to local and statewide officials, you want more salmon, including hatchery fish in our waters, and you want it now. SacredSea.org. It's worth a look if you haven't been there. Perfect. Thank you so much for doing this. This was fantastic. You bet. My pleasure. All right. Um, thanks for doing what you're doing. Really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks a lot. You bet. Thanks for checking out Scamma, produced by the always awesome Rain Banu, with the epic assistance of Spencer Pickles and James Christensen. If you like the show, please spread the word, subscribe to our newsletter, our medium magazine, visit our YouTube channel for cool bonus material, and if you're on iTunes, click that subscribe button so we get more sponsors 
And you don't miss upcoming episodes with guests like Peter Voliban, author of The Inner Life of Animals, and Daniel Polly, author of Vanishing Fish. And if you'd like to help us make more podcasts more often, please join our pod at patreon.com. Join now as a big fish, and you can get a special signed edition of my latest book, Orcas Everywhere, in stores everywhere this September. If this show didn't work for you, I'm Michelle Parise, and this is Alone, a Love Story. Hi, Michelle. Congrats on the epic series. Thanks again for checking out Scanna, and be sure to share this episode with your friends to celebrate Orca Action Month.